SiriusXM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. He's a social psychologist. Social psychology is the study of so-called normal people in normal everyday circumstances, how we think, how we feel, how we behave, how we make sense of the dilemmas in our lives, the goals we have, how we understand other people, um, and how we interact. A Stanford alumnus, an associate professor of psychology. We have to find ways to connect and to, to support each other and to be together. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Greg Walton. Now, here's your host, Howard Wolf. During these pandemic times, many of us are working from home, separated from our workmates. And as much as we like our instantaneous commutes, many of us miss those with whom we used to work on a daily physical basis in the workplace. There are many benefits to working from home, but the big downside is that we can lose a sense of personal connection with those with whom we work. Seeing faces on Zoom, BlueJeans, WebEx, Skype, or Google is great, much better than a simple phone call. But let's be honest, it's not like being together in person. And then there are all the serendipitous moments we miss out on. Remember those casual conversations that used to take place before meetings started? Gone. And how about hanging out in the conference room after the meetings concluded? Gone. It's just not the same. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders is a social psychologist and an expert in such matters. Most importantly, he is going to help us understand how to make the best of the situation we currently find ourselves working from home. Greg Walton is a proud Stanford alumnus with a PhD in psychology from Yale. And he now works at Stanford where he is an associate professor of psychology. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking a bit about how you got to Stanford. Where'd you come from? Why Stanford as opposed to, let's say, the University of Michigan? And why come back as a professor in psychology? Yeah, well, I, I was brought up in Ann Arbor, and I will always say go blue. But um, my parents are on the faculty at Michigan. And even when I was in high school, I had read about some of the work, the pioneering work done by Claude Steele and others. And um, at the time at Stanford on the, the causes of inequalities in school achievement, and I thought, here's a place where there are people sort of really looking at problems and trying to showing new ways to understand them and trying to engage in the world and doing that. And that's really what drew me back as a professor uh, after graduate school was that Stanford is an institution that is engaged in the world uh, very seriously in a very committed way and in very interdisciplinary ways. It's not an ivory tower. It's a place where we're trying to learn in and learn from and learn with uh, problems uh, in the world ideally with the goal of trying to make progress on those problems. 
So before we go into the actual field that you work in, if I just heard you correctly, you went into the family business. Yeah, um, much more so than even that would suggest. And um, I, you know, I like to say that everybody takes a, a, a journey when they come to college, everybody travels a social distance. That journey is much, much further and more difficult for first-generation college students and for students who are racial ethnic minorities in college. For me, I was, I was blessed with many um, advantages. My parents are both faculty members at Michigan. My grandfather uh, was a faculty member, uh, he's a professor of biology at the University of Rhode Island. My great-grandfather was a professor of religion at Williams College, and among the members of his dissertation committee was William James. So, oh my word. Um, yeah, so that, that's certainly part of the um, background that I come from. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's an important did you, thing. Did your parents try to disabuse you of the notion of becoming a faculty member, or did they, were they fully supportive? No, they were fully supportive. I mean, the, my field, social psychology, is not either of their fields. My father's a philosopher. My mother is an ethnomusicologist. Um, so neither of them are... Um, are you know psychologists and or or broadly social scientists? My mother is is borders that. But all right. So you brought up this term. So you're a professor of social psychology at Stanford. People know what psychology is, but for the most part. But what is social psychology, and why is it different than normal psychology? Well, when you think of psychology, often you think of uh, people with problems like clinical psychology, or it's sometimes even defined as abnormal, even when those problems may be very normal. Social psychology is the study of so-called normal people in normal everyday circumstances, how we think, how we feel, how we behave, how we make sense of the dilemmas in our lives, the goals we have, how we understand other people, um, and how we interact. The field, um, very interestingly, began in the crucible of social problems in the mid-20th century when people from all disciplines were looking at the horrors of, the, of World War II and, under, and thinking about group dynamics and how something like the Holocaust, uh, for example, could have happened. And that, that uh, origin is, um, is, uh, stays with the field today, a deep engagement with social problems. And when did you realize you wanted to become a social psychologist? Was it in high school? In high school, my interest was piqued by, uh, by the work on stereotype threat by Claude Steele uh, that I had read about through a student group um, that I was in. Um, but in college, I served as a research assistant for Claude, and I ultimately did an honors thesis with him. And I loved, I fell in love with the, the collaborative, the creative nature of the work and the engagement in really trying to understand people on their own terms, why, why outcomes sometimes go awry and how you can help people to better, to better circumstances. All right, so you've been a pioneer in this concept of wise interventions. So help the listeners understand what are wise interventions and, and why should they matter to us? Yeah, wise interventions are wise to how people make sense of themselves or other people or social situations. Uh, they can be distinguished from interventions. So often when we think about how to solve social problems or what causes social problems, what would be needed to solve them. Like one kind of thing that we often think of are kind of objective circumstances like resources. So if you don't have adequate school buildings, if you don't have uh, teachers who have sort of minim minimal qualifications, if you're not providing kids spelling lessons, they're not gonna learn how to spell, right? So there's a, there's a level of social problems that requires objective affordances. Um, there's also a level of social problems that requires people to have 
um, qualities into themselves, sometimes that we think of sort of built in or, inter or, or habits or um, skills uh, that are also important. So kids aren't going to learn if they're not at a basic level motivated and they're not at a basic level um, capable of doing that learning. But a lot of space happens in between uh, those two. So a lot of what, uh, a lot of the challenges that we face happen because of how people make sense of the situations that they're in, in ways that can prevent them from taking advantage of resources and opportunities that are available to them. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the concept of social belonging, because you and I have actually chatted about this, especially as it relates to students coming to a college campus and feeling as if they belong. So what is social belonging and why is that important? Yeah, social belonging is the feeling that you belong in an environment, that you're respected there, that you're valued for who you are there, that you can bring your whole self to that environment, that people will uh, be welcoming of you. Um, it's essentially a relationship between yourself and a place or a context. And if people don't, it's a basic human need to want to belong. And if people don't feel like they belong, it's very hard to stay motivated and engaged. And so what are ways to help people feel as if they do belong? Well, there's many reasons why people might feel like they don't belong. And then there's correspondingly many different uh, solutions. I think one of the um, uh, most significant and uh, sort of largest uh, threats to belonging that people face comes about from the culture and the history of our society. So you can read the history of American education as a war over inclusion and exclusion. So you have history, for example, involving the um, desegregation of schools and the fights that individuals and communities went through to gain, just to gain access to schools. You can see fights over affirmative action. You can see fights over the inclusion of groups that have been excluded from tech, like women and, and minorities, all in terms of uh, uh, a fight over basically who belongs uh, in these environments. And so people come into school settings with that history in mind. That's why I said earlier that people differ in the, the social distance that they travel when they come to school. So I came to Stanford as a white guy, uh, as, a, as a man, as a person with academic background. I had, I had, you know, I had my own worries about belongingness coming to college, as everybody does. But my worries um, weren't rooted in this deep history that might have led me to question whether somebody like me could belong at Stanford. I think the experience then, when you come to Stanford or another institution, is radically different. So if you're coming from a background that doesn't seem normative on campus, that seems like it might be questioned whether it's capable uh, to succeed, uh, then little things that happen, like feeling homesick or getting criticized by a professor or having something like uh, the experiences that are really important to your community, like experiences of racial violence, uh, go, un got, go unacknowledged or ignored in the classroom, can seem to provoke the feeling that maybe people like you don't belong there. So I know a little bit about what you speak. I was a first generation college kid. And I remember vividly as if it were yesterday, what my dad said to me when he left me off at the dorm. Um, he had not gone to college. He died later on that year. He said, well, I don't know what to make of it, but good luck. It <laughs> literally was the, I mean, that's all he could tell me, right? Because he didn't have any experience set of understanding college. Um, fast forward 30 years later, or however many years later it was, no, I guess 12, whatever it was, and I dropped my daughter off at college, and it was an entirely different conversation because I had had that experience, so I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, so in addition to being a theorist in social psychology, you are also very focused on solving real world problems. You said that that's one of the reasons that you got into social psychology. So with that in mind, let's transition this conversation to the pandemic that we currently face. 
And aside from the obvious health concerns related to the coronavirus and COVID-19, what other concerns do you have from a more psychological perspective that people are dealing with today? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are seeing uh, uh, real um, experiences of social isolation. I mean, when people are socially distant, they are not able to interact with uh, the broad communities that they would normally engage with. Um, you know, I have a, a postdoctoral fellow in my lab right now, um, Chris Rosick, who is beginning a faculty position at Washington University in St. Louis. And oh, congratulations. To, thank you, yeah, um, in the this summer. He has just collected data from um, several thousand adolescents, high school students at three different colleges, at three different high schools around the country. And, you know, there are rates of depression that are approaching 50%, very high rates of, of loneliness. Five, zero, 50%. Yeah, in his samples. Yeah. And you think about adolescence. Adolescence is it's such an important period for people to um, have their home and their family as a base, but then to reach out and to build relationships with peers. And those relationships become so important. People are, are not able to do that. They, they suffer. Um, I think that's part of why it's so important that we um, think about and value the ways that we can connect uh, in times like these, um, even when those ways are, are different and, and inadequate, uh, they can, I think, be helpful. But like you and I are now doing this interview over Zoom. I see your face, you see my face, you're in your house, I'm in my home. But it's not the same, is it? As if no. we were together in a studio doing this in person. Yeah, I, I think that there's a number of things that happen. I mean, some of them are very basic. So, for example, when you're talking to somebody, a, a basic aspect of human communication is that you're establishing common ground. What is it that you know that I know so that we can advance the conversation and respond to each other appropriately? If your internet cuts out for a, a couple seconds and you've frozen on me and I've been saying something, I don't know whether you've heard what I've said. So that just disrupts the flow of the conversation. Uh, if our if our um, systems are lagging each other, right. uh, we can't engage in the kind of nonverbal mimicry that people have called a social dance, a social glue that that fosters connection and, and connectedness. So there's a lot of challenges that that happen in that online world. In group settings, uh, you know, you can be in a, a group meeting with people, and then you can see some people disappear and then reappear. Maybe their internet cut out. Maybe they got bored. If you're in a room with a group of people, somebody leaves, you can see who that person was who left. But in a Zoom session, if there's 12 people, it's like, who was that person who left? So you get socially disoriented. I think people feel exhausted at the end of a long day of Zoom. They don't feel energized like you might if you were interacting in person. And we lose the serendipity as well, right? It's those, those moments before a meeting starts that you're schmoozing with somebody, you're talking. It's after the meeting's over, you, you want to talk to someone about something that happened in the meeting, but you want to do it one-on-one. -on -one. You don't do that. Yeah, it's absolutely true. You know, I remember in high school, these, these um, conversations, the night, the, in, in a particular class, we would all have watched Friends the night before, and there would be five minutes before class started, and we would talk about, I don't remember anything else from the, I don't even remember what class that was in, but I remember <laughs> that we would have these conversations, I don't even remember the nature of those conversations, just that we had them and it was a point of connection. So okay. that serendipity is very powerful, and it's very powerful for belonging in particular, because as I said, belonging is a relationship with a context. And um, the, the people who are in a setting who uh, aren't necessarily your good friends, but who you have friendly, positive, reciprocal interactions with, in some ways they can symbolize your relationship with that context even better than the close friends you have, because those close friends exist apart from the context. They don't just represent the context. Oh, that's fascinating. 
All right, so we're, a lot of us are working from home. We're separated from our workmates. Give us some tips on how to um, feel more connected while at the same time we're physically apart. I think one of the things that's really helpful is just to uh, go the extra mile a bit to acknowledge other people uh, and to um, reach out to them to communicate at least that you're thinking of them and that you're on the same team working together with them towards whatever personal or professional goals that you might, you might share with them. I think that when people aren't having those interactions, they're not getting that uh, kind of uh, bolstering from the, from, from the serendipitous interactions, the, the little exchanges at the coffee maker. And if you're just sitting in front of your computer all day or, or whatever your, your place of work is, and you're not, you're, and you're, you're not actually interacting, you need those, those communications to convey that people are thinking of you and valuing you. Yeah, so one of my staff members told me that it's the water cooler talk that she misses the most. Yeah, because right? there's no. That was my form. friends. That was my conversation about the, the show Friends. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you guys wanted to talk about what had happened at Friends the night before. You can't have those conversations seemingly today. I guess you could make space for that, but no one does. And the meetings end. The Zoom meeting ends at eleven, and the next meeting starts at eleven. So literally, you click off and click on. Boom. It's like that. And that's hard because you are a part and it feels like it. Yeah, yeah. There's some work that suggests there's cultural differences in how much people want to share from their personal lives uh, in, in work settings. Um, but I think uh, everybody, wants, uh, everybody wants to be a whole self in these settings. You're not just a, like a robot or an automaton doing work. You also want to, want to have that connection. All right. So we all talk these days about the importance of social distancing. Some people might say physical distancing, but the term of art seems to be social distancing. But you like to talk about something that sort of switches those words, right? Distance socializing. So what's the difference between social distancing and distant socializing, and why does it matter? Yeah, social distancing is just saying, I'm going to stay away from you. You are, you are a potential threat to me. I'm staying away. But distant socializing is saying, okay, we might be distant, but we can still socialize. Let's think about the variety of ways that we like to socialize. How can we re recreate those uh, in, in, um, in the circumstance that, that we're allowed? Okay, so, so they're the same two words, but the, the juxtaposition of those words is a big difference in terms of what they mean. Yeah, yeah. So one puts the emphasis on the actual socializing, that there are ways to socialize and socialize as many forms. What are the ways that you value? What are the ways that you miss? How can you create those? What are the communities of people, given the online space, that you can create that with? This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. More with Greg Walton, social psychologist, next on Sirius XM. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. And I'm speaking with Greg Walton, social psychologist. So in preparing for this talk, um, I, I read a lot about you. You and I have met before, obviously. You're an alum of Stanford, so you're near and dear to my heart for that reason as well. But I was fascinated by this concept of togetherness, right? So if we talk about togetherness, I think I know what it means. But as I read what you've written about it, you see it as both an objective experience and a psychological one. And I didn't really follow exactly what that means. Help us understand this concept of togetherness and how it can be two different things. Yeah, so when we think of being together, physically together, you might mean that you're in the same room together. You might mean that there's a common task that you are working on at the same time, like, you know, maybe 
we're mechanics at a garage and you're working on one part of the car and I'm working on a different part of the car. And at the end of the day, both of those jobs have to be done for the customer to be satisfied. We might think of ourselves, and that's a circumstance where we're going to share a common outcome. The car is either ready to go and the customer is satisfied or, or not. Um, but you can also uh, think about circumstances where you're doing your individual thing uh, and somebody else is doing their individual thing, but you acknowledge each other uh, and think of each other as, in a sense, uh, working together. So I might be writing a paper, for example. Uh, say for a class, and I might have a dorm mate who's writing a paper, maybe even for a different class. But maybe my dorm mate says to me, maybe she says, hey, here's something I, I ran into that might be helpful for your paper. And uh, I, I look that up and I think, oh, thank you. That is or isn't helpful, but I appreciate your thinking of me. And I might think, oh, here's something that might be helpful for your paper. And I give that to her for her paper. And we're both writing our individual papers. We might be writing separately. We need not be in the same place. We do so with a kind of sense uh, that we're working together. We're treating each other as though we're working together on writing those papers. And that can be a very powerful source of motivation. It doesn't mean that you have to be together physically, and it doesn't mean that you even have to be working on the same thing, like the same car or the same paper. You can be working on different things, but you do so in a way that treats each other as though you're, you're in it together. So my son loves to paint, and he has a friend who loves to paint, but they're separated right now. So what he does on the weekends is he puts FaceTime on and he talks to her as he paints and she talks to him and then they take the phone and they show how they're progressing on their paintings. So I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Right? All right, so in a world where loneliness seems to be a big and growing problem, is the goal togetherness even if you're apart? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we can't, we are not, we're not a species that was built to be alone. And so when we have to go through a period of time, however long this period will be, and however much stress and anxiety there will be due to the uh, COVID-19 crisis, where we're not interacting in normal ways, we have to find ways to connect and to, to support each other and to be together. So you, you mentioned earlier the word motivation, and you used it when you were talking about togetherness. So let's talk about motivation. So let me give you an example. I used to, in the pre-COVID days, go to the gym. I would go to the gym because it motivated me to see other people working out. If I tried to do it at home, as I've been trying to do it for the last three months, it does not work as well because I don't have the outside stimulation, the motivation to see somebody else working out saying, okay, I probably should do that too. Talk to us about how togetherness and motivation work together and why motivation is so important and why it's such a struggle um, when, we're, when we're alone. Yeah, I think that uh, if you're alone, it can feel like work. Like, something that you have to do, that you don't want to do, uh, where you have to force yourself to do it, you get exhausted quickly from doing it. But when you are feeling that that thing that you're doing is done with other people, and when you're feeling that that's, uh, that's sort of working towards something that's important for a community of people, then it can almost feel like play, where you, you draw motivation from the work itself and from the engagement with it. I mean, people can work extraordinarily hard on, on things that matter to them. Um, and when I, and for very, very, very long periods of time, we are such capable uh, creatures. And when I think about that, I think that that almost always happens in a social context, at least an imagined social context, where you're working with other people. So if you think about the sort of stereotypical group of um, young um, startup founders, 
partners who are, t they're living together in a little house and they're sleeping and eating and programming simultaneously uh, uh, with each other all the time, working towards a mission. That's a, that's a very powerful togetherness. If you think about the way that research labs work, uh, people you know, come into research labs, they have a dedicated mission to understand something or to improve something. And they work together collaboratively to do that. Science is, is inherently a deeply collaborative process. Um, you know, I think that I think that in in all of these cases, what powerfully motivates people is that feeling that you're sharing some goals with other people, that you're doing your part towards it, that they're doing their part, that you're going to help them with what you learn, that they're going to help you with what they learn. That if you find a tip that will be helpful for them, you'll give it to them. If they find a tip, it'll be give it to you, and together you'll construct something amazing. That's how that's how cultural achievements happen. And so when I hear you talk about this, it reminds me the military is huge on this topic, right? The whole concept of the band of brothers and athletic teams. Uh, just think about Stanford. You, 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 when you ask somebody, why is it that you won the national championship? I did it for my, my, my teammates, right? We were all in this together. These were my sisters. These were my brothers. Um, that was the motivation. It wasn't to win the trophy or to, for the accolades or for the glory. It was because we were in this together and we motivated each other to do it. So that makes it tough right now, right? Because if you're, if everyone's at home, that togetherness, you have to figure out other ways to create togetherness. Yeah. Even if it, you're apart. Yeah. So I, I think it's really, um, it's a different kind of, absolutely. It's a different kind of time. Um, you know, there are ways to create togetherness that don't, that uh, one of the most powerful ways to create togetherness is uh, what's called the fast friends procedure. Um, it's uh, by, created by Art Aaron, who's over at, at Berkeley. And it involves a succession of increasingly self-disclosing questions that people ask and answer of each other. Um, I think that it's a time for people to have different kinds of conversations. Um, you can't do certain kinds of things, but you can do um, other kinds of things. And if we can deepen our relationships, if we can uh, get to spaces that maybe we weren't at before, um, that may temper some of that, um, that loneliness. And you know, certainly if we can, have frank um, and sort of growth-oriented conversations across group lines around some of the racial violence that's hitting our country. If we can understand each other better, that would be good for our society um, as well as for us individually. All right, so final question. Um, any final thoughts, ideas, suggestions for how to best cope during these pandemic times? I know you've covered a lot of ground here in this discussion, but I don't get a social psychologist on the show very often, so I thought I'd ask that final question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, I think it's important to um, keep in mind that this too will pass. The world will will change in some way um, as it goes forward. Um, you know, exercise is always important. It's one of the most important predictors of of um, well-being and and uh, mental acuity is exercise. And if you can exercise uh, in ways with others uh, that respect social distancing, then that's all the better. Fantastic. Well, Greg, thank you so very, very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, from your mouth to you know whose ears would my mother say that the world's gonna go back to some sense of normal sometime soon, but thank you so very much and best of luck to you. Great, thank you, Howard. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app or wherever you find your podcasts.